This program features interviews with respected healthcare industry experts on current topics of substantial national importance. Your host for the program is David Intricasso, a DC-based healthcare policy analyst and researcher. We invite you to comment on the program by visiting thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Now, here's David. Welcome to the Healthcare Policy Podcast. Again, I'm the host, David Intracasso. During this podcast, we'll discuss the recently published volume, 150 Years of Obamacare. With me to discuss the work is the author, Daniel E. Dawes, Executive Director of Health Policy and External Affairs at the Morehouse School of Medicine. Uh, Daniel, uh, welcome to the program. Thank you. It's so great to be with you today. Professor Dawes's bio is, of course, posted on the podcast website. On background, there are now at least a few book-length works concerning passage of the 2010 Affordable Care Act, or Obamacare. Recently published by Johns Hopkins Press, 150 Years of Obamacare begins with Professor Dawes' discussion of efforts ostensibly over the past 150 years to reform national health policy, beginning with the 1865 Freedmen's Bureau Act. His book, moreover, is an accounting of the passage of the ACA in the context of his and others' efforts under the National Working Group on Health Disparities and Health Reform to include what would become in the ACA health equity provisions or legislative provisions to reduce disparities in healthcare delivery and outcomes. So with that as background, uh, let me ask uh, Daniel a few questions actually about or your take on the passage or the process in passing the ACA. I'm interested first to ask, at a page 109, you say, early on we knew Republicans were not going to support any health care reform package. My own um, experience was early in 2009, I actually had a conversation with a now-retired Senator Rockefeller, and he told me bluntly the Republican strategy was to delay indefinitely, or as he said, run out the clock. Um, but what's your interpretation of why Republicans opposed the bill? And I suppose we could ask... Also, or in addition, obviously Republican governors have been resistant in expanding uh, Medicaid under the ACA. Correct. So, you know, that's a really great question. And for us, I think we were looking at this issue of health equity from a nonpartisan lens. We had always enjoyed um, bipartisan support for health disparities, reduction, elimination in the United States. And a lot of the provisions that we were trying to advance um, were health equity related, meaning we were trying to um, address the needs of our most vulnerable populations, disparate, marginalized groups, looking at in improving cultural competency, improving um, the cultural competency of the workforce and the care and quality. And what was interesting was early on, Republicans said, yes, we support you guys in, in getting uh, these provisions in the Affordable Care Act or in the health reform proposals uh, that were being negotiated in committees. And I think it was clear to us then that, um, uh, you know, after uh, Olympia Snow um, decided she wasn't going to uh, continue to move this uh, bill along. She had voted initially in the in committee. committee but, right. but Correct. But afterwards, it was clear to us once um, we lost her that uh, there probably was no hope of salvaging an attempt to make this a bipartisan bill. But we wanted to move on ahead still because in the past, there were two minority health bills that were passed 120 years uh, post-Reconstruction. So you're talking about after 1865, mm -hmm. 
the first minority bill was called the um, Disadvantaged Minority Health Bill, and that was actually signed into law by President uh, George H.W. Bush, which is surprising to many people. Mm -hmm. But it was actually spearheaded by two Democrats, uh, Congressman Louis Stokes in the House and Senator Edward Kennedy in the Senate. They worked collaboratively to push this. And then, of course, folks in the Bush administration then worked and and pushed uh, the president to sign that into law. The second one took 10 years. So remember, 120 years to get that first one, Mm -hmm. which was a very small bill passed, using strategies and tactics from, um, you know, when they had actually gotten the Freedmen's Bureau into law. Mm-hmm. And um, 10 years later, under the Bill Clinton administration, we were able to get a more comprehensive minority health bill passed. And again, both of these bills were done on a bipartisan basis. And that's why we early on believed that it was possible this time around, even though we knew during the Clinton administration when folks were negotiating health reform that there was a lot of effort to, um, you know, of course, uh, Put obstruct uh, uh, progress on that bill. So when that happened, um, and uh, I'll tell you, even internally with health reform champions in Congress and at the White House, we still had to fight um, (laughs) to to, to prioritize this issue of health equity because there were many Democrats who were concerned about the issue. They didn't think that um, it was palatable. They didn't think that um, it would get the support. It would actually uh, bring down, they they thought, some of them, bring down the um, health reform negotiations. And we thought that was unfortunate. And the reason why is, um, or the reason why I believe uh, they were concerned was that every time we had tried to, to, to pass a comprehensive health reform bill in this country, Folks always, opponents of health reform, always try to infuse race and gender into the negotiations to discredit, to undermine, to get folks scared mm-hmm. um, about um, the efforts to help minorities and women and other vulnerable populations. So that was unfortunate. And um, this time around, we saw that happening. And that was, again, something that was, uh, you know, very upsetting for us. So race, gender and immigrants. Yes. Right. Yes. yes you got it right. Yes. Let me, it's a sort of similar question. Uh, this time around, the AMA supported the bill, but as you point out over and again in your book, particularly the yeah. first third of the book, the AMA opposed nearly every previous health reform bill, including, of course, the 65 Medicare bill. You say yeah. that their opposition was based on socialized medicine, whatever that means specifically, right. but um, they did turn the corner finally to the AMA's credit, correct? They did. Okay. Let me, let me ask you a question about the, how we refer to this bill, and that's uh, we refer to it as Obamacare. And I certainly recognize the president's support for the legislation, and obviously uh, he signed it. But I do have this question. I've always been meaning to ask an expert. So you know what the president um, provided? Uh, he did not provide draft legislation. Instead, he provided uh, broad principles. And he actually opposed several uh, provisions, at least in the House Democratic version of legislation. And I can tell you, House Democrats were not happy when he gave his speech to the joint session of Congress in September 2009, where he noted the 10-year cost would be $900 billion. And the House Democrats were talking over a trillion. I recognize there was a lot of concern about the use of the T word here, trillion. That's right. So... For those reasons and others, um, you know, I'm still somewhat stumped. Why do we call it Obamacare when, in fact, we know Max, as you recognize, Max Baucus, 
uh, Harry Reid, Nancy Pelosi, and others, Miller, Waxman, and others did a lot of, as they would say on the Hill, the heavy lifting. You know, again, I think um, with the origins of this word, we know that it was used by opponents. Again, um, with uh, Obama not having, President Obama not having favorable ratings among those who oppose, mm -hmm. um, you know, anything that he's, he's done and opposes administration, I think it was just to tie this health care reform effort to him to further uh, discredit um, discredit the bill and to um, uh, increase opposition to it. I think that's unfortunate, but I think it backfired to an extent when the president himself said, well, you're right, Obama does care. <laughs> And embrace the term. <laughs> right. So, so, and and I actually wanted to follow up on what you what you talked about because you're right. You know, there are there were many Democrats, especially in the House, that were quite upset with the president for um, you know his um, his promise not to exceed 900 billion. And I'll tell you, even externally, for for many of us. We also um, were upset afterwards. I didn't quite get, and I don't think a lot of folks appreciated um, what that promise might mean for our efforts with the health equity provisions. We, you know, we were successful in getting 62 and keeping 62 provisions directly addressing this issue of health equity in the Affordable Care Act, but we had more provisions in there. And when after after the president gave that speech, we were contacted by the White House. And um, we were told, oh, you know, we just wanted to let you guys know that um, we're going to have to, uh, you know, strip out some of the provisions. We're going to have to cut back, um, you know, due to the cost of the bill. And um, and we didn't quite know what that meant. So we asked, well, which provisions exactly? Oh, you know, uh, we're still negotiating that. We're still deciding. But that was a heads up because the next day there was a New York Times article basically saying that the White House, quoting White House senior officials, saying that they wanted to get rid of the data collection and reporting provisions. They wanted to get rid of the school-based um, health center provisions and, and others. And that was a huge, huge um, no for us because of all of the um, provisions in this law, data collection was the one that every disparate group in our national working group came together and embraced and said, you know what, if we don't have accurate data, we can't track the disparities among different groups in the United States in terms of health care, um, access, treatment, um, et cetera. So, you know, the Tricaucus and the Tri-Caucus is really the Congressional Black Caucus, the Congressional Hispanic Caucus, and the Congressional Asian Pacific American Caucus came together and they said, you will not do this to us. You are going to prioritize health equity in this bill like you had promised President Obama during your campaign and during the White House summit, that first summit, um, where he brought together stakeholders to flesh out you know, an outline uh, for how to proceed. And they were quite irritated that um, the president, in a letter before his speech to Senator Kennedy and Senator Baucus, hadn't uh, mentioned uh, reducing or eliminating health disparities as a priority in the bill. And we, too, were a little concerned about that, but not quite until that New York Times article came out and said, yep, they specifically mentioned taking out the data collection pieces, taking out the school-based uh, health centers, uh, taking out other provisions. And um, and then that's when we re we realize, oh my goodness, <laughs> these provisions have never been scored to begin with. How in the world are you arguing that this is a cost saver by reducing them? Mm -hmm. And again, I think it's that original fear that um, some folks had in the administration about tackling this issue of minority health and health disparities. 
I think that's where some of this came from, that they thought perhaps with the Tea Party movement heating up and um, the opposition increasing tremendously, especially in August, that August of 2009, that uh, they they perhaps should uh, you know reconsider um, what the focus should be. And instead of going from comprehensive health reform, which was the promise originally, and I'm sure you saw that strategy from comprehensive health reform to just health reform, they mm-hmm. mixed comprehensive, and then they um, started using um, the strategy of calling it health insurance reform. And, you know, again, with that one, we were at first, we thought, gee, that's a smart strategy. There's so many, you know, um, people in this country who um, are upset with insurers. They, um, they've they had, you know, very um, bad experiences, uh, have been discriminated in, uh, you know, in, in getting coverage, or they were actually, uh, they actually saw their coverage rescinded um, as a result of their care becoming too costly. So we thought that was a first, uh, a brilliant strategy at first, but then we saw it backfire on us. When, you know, folks then started talking about, uh, again, cutting out other health equity provisions, dealing with, with, with comparative effectiveness research, dealing with the navigators and requiring that they be culturally competent in the health insurance exchanges, or, or requiring payers, if they're going to be a qualified health plan in the exchanges, um, to produce a strategy that would reward providers that develop uh, plans to eliminate or address the underlying health disparities in their communities. So we got quite frightened with that, and I and I have to say that um, I'm glad that we we did push back. But you're you're absolutely right, and I say all that to say that um, in the end, I guess you know, just like folks try to do with Hillary with Hillary Care and Romney, uh, opponents of Romney Care, that um, again the the name has stuck. But I don't see that necessarily as a negative thing sure, right now. Sure. Sure. Okay. Thank you. When I first picked up the book, uh, I wanted to go to the chapter that provided uh, detail uh, relative to uh, how great disparities are in healthcare delivering outcomes. So I live in D.C., and we, uh, last I look, have the greatest disparity in male lifespan compared to whites. African Americans die 15 years younger. And amongst other um, uh, problems, for example, amputation rates related to diabetes are five times higher for African Americans than whites. We could talk about disparities in infant mortality, and the list goes on and on and on. You got it. In fact, the data is extremely sobering. So I found it interesting, however, that you did not include a discussion of how serious health care disparities are in this country. So I, I'm, I, the question is bag, why was that? What was the calculus there? You know, the reason why was, um, uh, to me, you have quite a, a number of books that have fleshed out uh, these uh, disparities have um, documented them. There has been tremendous resor- uh, um, research that has been uh, synthesized, summarized uh, in uh, various books. And so I wanted the focus to be more on the policy. So, yes, you're right. In the first chapter, we quickly highlight a few of these disparities, um, racial and ethnic, uh, gender, geographic, uh, disability-related, et cetera, to give folks a sense of what we're talking about. So when I'm talking about health equity, here's what it is. But, you know, I I figured most readers of this book really might have a a sense already, especially health policy um, uh, wants, that they would have an an idea of what we're already talking about. So let me really focus now on the substance of what we're trying to to argue here in the book and what we're trying to highlight. Okay. So th- key, key issue, but I guess due to space limitations, too, 
couldn't really focus uh, too much. No, you're right. And you do mention the Clinton 2000 bill, and that created the ARC's annual healthcare disparities report, now combined with the quality report. So you could look any year um, for what's yes. the latest on disparity stats uh, via the ARC document. Let's go to, um, you mentioned 62 provisions. So uh, at pages 216 through 32, you outline all these provisions, beginning with access to health care. So here's the question, uh, and I'm sorry I buried the lead here, but the question is, how satisfied are you with the provisions in some? What more could have been done? Well, I think we are elated that we got uh, to keep so many provisions. And I'll tell you, with uh, Blue Dog Democrats in the House, we had even more uh, provisions inserted in the House bill, and um, of course through negotiation is. And you know how things were going at that time. Our yeah, they were they were frightened, right, right, frightened oh, to keep their offices. Yes. Oh, you got it. And you know, it was a whirlwind for us just trying to keep um, focus and monitor these provisions that um, were included um, in those uh, respective bills. But then what we noticed was every time there was some intense negotiation. Uh, during committee, all of a sudden we would find um, in a in a newer version of the bill that the uh, XYZ provision had been lost. Uh, we wanted a definition of health disparities that was uniform across the federal um, agencies. And we were successful in vetting that language among all of these disparate groups. So you have the LGBT groups, you have the women groups, the children, the older adults, everybody coming together and agreeing that this is what we wanted. We got it in the bill just to find out Apparently, there were folks who were upset by how broad that definition was and did not like the fact that um, it would expand um, certain rights for LGBT individuals, for instance. I remember that being a contentious uh, issue at the time. Mm-hmm. And um, so so for us, we are, we are still pleased. I know when Senator Kennedy died as well in the Senate um, bills, uh, Senate Health and Senate Finance uh, bills, we noticed in the Senate Health Bill that we, too, had lost some provisions um, in there, and that was quite upsetting. So overall, though, when you look back at the last 150 years and you realize just how far we've come, and, and let me take you back to, you talked about the Freedmen's Bureau earlier, mm-hmm. and I, I just want to highlight why this is so critical, because during that time, in 1865, they had um, health reformers, uh, folks who cared about minority health, really pushed to get this um, act passed. Um, it was done reluctantly, um, with uh, as uh, few votes as possible to get it done. And um, they were able, of course, to override um, President Johnson's veto every single year. That program was allowed to remain in place for seven years. And then they dismantled it. We're now at the sixth anniversary of the Affordable Care Act, a bill that is, you know, helping, positively benefiting uh, many African Americans, many Latinos, and other groups that have um, the highest insurance rates in the country. And I've heard from folks who aren't too pleased with that, um, you know, in, in various parts of our country. And so I, when I hear folks talking about the, um, the the fact that uh, opponents, uh, well, they, they will claim that opponents are just blowing hot air. They're never going to repeal Obamacare. I say, oh, my gosh, I don't, I, I totally disagree with you because it's been done in the past. Mm-hmm. And I think that um, we 
people people actually would be bold this time around and do it. And I don't care um, what certain economists have said, because back then that was one of the arguments that folks invested so much money in creating this medical division and creating hospitals and um, medical schools and training providers to take care of uh, newly freed uh, slaves. And yet, despite all of that investment, they did eliminate it. And today we are seeing striking parallels between then and now. But let me, let me actually tie that in now with the mental health reformers. Because with the mental health reformers, you, you know that with Dor- Dorothea Dix and others leading efforts um, in Congress to push for um, uh, a mental health reform type of policy, they were successful after years and years and years of trying. They finally got Congress to pass that bill, and it was the uh, bill for the benefit of the indigent insane. Mm-hmm. Well, you would have thought at that time that um, President Franklin Pierce uh, would have been the most sensitive president on this issue, having lost his first son tragically to a train accident. He was the only person to have died when they were riding the train um, after after attending a funeral for his wife's side. They were on their way to their inauguration. And the son died tragically. His, you know, his brain was open. It was a horrible death. And his wife, at the time, suffered terrible mental illness, um, severe clinical mm-hmm. depression, anxiety. Um, years afterwards, um, she also witnessed the loss of her two other sons, um, which was very tragic. And yet, when the bill came to President Pierce's desk, he would not sign it into law. In fact, he vetoed it. And in the longest veto message I've ever read, he made the argument for federal non-involvement or inaction concerning um, human welfare and health care. It was so sad. And that actually set the policy now of inaction for the next hundred years in our country. And after that time with minority health and mental health, after that hundred year period, in the 1950s, 1960s, that's when you saw more progressive policies around healthcare coming up again, but it was piecemeal, very, very limited, until we got to um, Obamacare, which is why we continue to push and to emphasize that this bill, you promised administration, you promised Congress, uh, health reformers in Congress, that you are going to make this a comprehensive health reform. And we believe that if you're going to tackle all of the fragmentation, tackle all of the issues, the problems within our healthcare system, you had to do it in a comprehensive manner. It made no sense to keep doing this uh, or trying to address problems in a piecemeal fashion. That was our belief. And that's why we believe that this, uh, the Affordable Care Act, really is the most comprehensive bill ever passed by Congress, signed into law, directly addressing this issue of health inequities. And it is the most um, inclusive law that has ever been produced by Congress as well. Um, And not only in terms of the content, but in terms of the people who were brought together to craft this. So you had whites and blacks, um, Hispanics and Asian Americans and Native Americans. You had people with disabilities of all types. You had LGBT, um, older adults, younger adults coming together, folks from the faith community who came together to craft this law. And that's why it is such a beautiful thing. So when you ask, you know, are we happy with it? Yes, we are very pleased that we got this. But of course, we're never satisfied, and there is so much more left to do. And and um, just to quickly answer that piece of your question, 
We believe that um, there are other provisions um, that are in the Health Equity and Accountability Act. This is the Tricaucus bill that has been introduced since 2001, every single Congress until then. There are a lot of provisions that were not included from that bill that we still need to include. And there are issues dealing with long-term care, um, a huge issue, as you know, not only for mm-hmm. minorities, but for the entire population. We were very upset that um, the White House agreed um, when they were in this intense budget negotiation with um, uh, House and Senate Republicans, that uh, they would actually repeal that provision, the Class Act. Yeah, the Class. Well, they structured it such that it would never work, right? They right. said the structure would never. It was work. not actuarial and, sound, and then Sibelius came out and said it's not actuarial sound, so we're not going to implement it, right? And we disagreed with that. Um, mm-hmm. I, it, we thought it was unfortunate. We were hoping they would try to make it work. And unfortunately, that was one um, concession that folks made. And of course, you know, afterwards, uh, folks agreed to do a study then on long-term care. And yeah, that was know, Rockefeller, that, right? Yes, yes, yes. You, yes. you got it. And you know, we've seen that again in the 1950s and 60s, where folks then agreed, okay, we'll do a study on this, but nothing really concrete around that. Um, and I'll give you the, 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 the example of mental health again, where you had um, Truman and, uh, you know, setting up the, NIMA, the um, National Institute of Mental Health, the NIMH, um, and then Eisenhower coming in and instead of building upon that, decided to do a study. And folks weren't able to do a comprehensive mental health reform until President Carter came into office. And his wife, with him and his wife leading the effort, got a bill passed 125 years after Dorothea Dix's bill, mm-hmm. 125 years. And that bill, unfortunately, was passed two months before the 1980 election. And then when President Reagan came in, he dismantled that. So for us, we do see, um, you'll see in the in the health reform line, in the Affordable Care Act, that there are provisions that were taken from President Carter's bill and included in the Affordable Care Act, and even provisions that were taken um, from the bill for the benefit of the indigent and saying those, those principles were included in Carter's bill, now have, wa- have wound up um, and, and been included into the uh, Affordable Care Act. So we still, there are a lot of things that we've got to do in terms of, uh, you know, increasing behavioral health equity, mental health. We know that um, children, minority children in this country, are uh, only 13% of them are able to access behavioral health services. And when many of them are accessing those services, they tend to be um, inferior of lower quality. And so we have a lot to do in that space uh, to, to move the needle in terms of health equity there. So your, your overriding point, I, I, I think in my mind, is the phrase history takes too long as it relates to how many decades or a century to move legislation. You do know, per your concern about uh, the ACA's um, permanence, you do note several, I think upwards of 10 so-called near-death experiences. You term them in your volume. Relative to yeah. what's next, that was going to be my closeout question. You did note long-term care that ostensibly in this country is a poverty program. You only get a long-term care, at least institutional, if you're qualified uh, for Medicaid. So that's uh, right. Let me maybe press you on this relative to what's next. And I say that in context of we know health care, uh, the medical care component to health status, rather, is about 10 to 20 percent. So there are a lot of other areas uh, we could pursue or forward to improve health status. But if you were to prioritize, uh, say, three 
a larger ticket issues going forward that still need to be addressed? What would those be uh, in the health equity realm? Great question. So first would be Medicaid expansion. For yeah, there are 20 odd states who still refuse, yes? That's correct, exactly. And, um, you know, why we're so concerned is we have been looking at the data relative to the Children's Health Insurance Program and the establishment of those programs by states. We looked at the original Medicaid program to see how long uh, states took to um, uh, establish their Medicaid uh, programs and then compared it with what we're seeing with Medicaid, Medicaid expansion right now. And what was striking was with the CHIP program, within seven years, every single state had established their CHIP programs, right? So I guess there's this affinity for children. That's a very mm -hmm. sympathetic uh, group of folks. And, and so, you know, no big deal there, seven years, okay. With the Medicaid, the original Medicaid program in the 1960s, when states were first allowed to expand that um or establish that program, you had northern states really rushing to establish their programs within the first two years. And uh, those uh, states that oppose the idea of Medicaid, um, mostly in the southern states, taking three to four years. Well, by the seventh year, virtually every state had at least um, established their Medicaid program, but by the, well, except one, and that was Arizona. Arizona. Took, you know, 16 years. Right. 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 So now we're looking at the data and you know, if, if history is any of indi any indication, you would have thought by the seventh year then of, um, you know, the ACA that uh, folks would have really been hopping on this, or at least um, 2014, um, you know, when folks were able to, of course, you know, some states were able to um, expand their Medicaid programs even earlier than that. So let's say when they were first able to do that, we're now getting close to the seventh year. And again, we're just a little over half. And so by the rate we're going, it's going to take, it seems, twice as long to get that done. And the folks that are falling through the gap in terms of coverage, again, are primarily racial and ethnic minorities here in the South. Um, we know that 60% of African Americans that would benefit from Medicaid expansion live in these states that refuse to expand Medicaid. We know that it's a similar stat with women. Um, who are uninsured um, as well. So we're looking at these groups and we're trying to think of ways uh, to get folks to recognize that it really is beneficial to the state's economy to make sure that they have a healthy population. So that's number one for us is really what can we do to get folks to adopt or, or expand their Medicaid programs. The second um, um, hot topic issue for us is this idea of quality improvement and how it intersects with equity. So you might recall in the book there were five principles that we all came together on. The fifth one was around quality and equity. Mm -hmm. And you know when we our experts on quality have long forewarned that if we do not tackle um, the intersection of equity and quality, this bill will fail. And back in 2001, the Institute of Medicine, when it released its Crossing the Quality Chasm, Chasm. Report, right? You right, actually. Um, uh, delineated six um, areas of quality that had to be addressed if you were truly going to achieve quality in this nation, and one of the six was equity. But yet every time you hear folks that are involved in the quality space, they never, they always neglect that equity piece. And what do we see happening? We see the states that have, been in, that have high quality scores 
actually have the highest disparities among different racial and ethnic groups. So they have the highest racial and ethnic health care disparities, although they have the highest quality scores. And those are mostly in the North, East, and Midwest states. Now, in, and that's actually quite surprising to me. I thought you were going to see more disparities among racial and ethnic groups in the South. But that's not, that's not actually the, the, the fact. The fact is in the South, the quality of care um, in terms of the scores are lower and the disparities among different population groups are, are also lower. Mm-hmm. Isn't that amazing? Mm-hmm. And I asked folks at a, the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality, which I know you were involved with mm-hmm. in the past, I, asked, I said, so why is that? That's, that's not really what I would have thought, um, to be honest, and I'm sure that's quite surprising. And they said, well, you know, that's because the level of care um, is, is, about, is not really optimal. It's really uh, very um, inferior. And so, you know, it doesn't matter who you are. You're not going to get the best care in the South anyway. But in the North, folks are always focusing on quality, but they fail to take an equity lens and dig down deeper in the data to understand how that, um, how their one-size-fits-all approach is impacting um, various communities. So we, even within African-Americans, for instance, you might have folks who are black who speak French, and they might be from Haiti, or they might be from Rwanda, et cetera. You have Latinos. I mean, my gosh, we love to bunch uh, these folks together, and yet they, they are quite a diverse community in and of themselves with different cultural beliefs and um, and attitudes. And so we need to dig down deeper to address these underlying disparities, because if we are going to continue to push, and I know you've, you've done a series on MACRA, <laughs> this is the one concern for us, a major concern, that as Secretary Burwell, as HHS, as um, folks uh, you know, at uh, CMS continue to really focus on this value-based system, and, and they're now driving the tying payments to either quality or value, they need to start addressing this issue of equity. Because if they do not, mark my words, there are going to be huge losers, and you're going to have providers who already have very thin margins treating our most vulnerable populations doing even poor. They cannot, afu- cannot afford to lose another dime in terms of these programs. And we know it's budget people that are going to be winners and losers in this. Mm-hmm. And I'm just concerned about the safety net providers that um, are taking care of these patients. So that is a huge issue that CMS must get right, and they must address the intersection of quality and equity as they move forward with these um, reforms. Okay. Thank you, Daniel. We're at our, sadly, uh, at our time boundary, so very helpful, and I'm sure we could go on relative to what next uh, needs to be addressed. But we'll leave it with this. Thank you again for your time. Very appreciative. Thank you very much, David. I appreciate the opportunity. You have just heard another edition of the Healthcare Policy Podcast hosted by David Intricasso. To comment on this program or others, to see information about upcoming interviews, to suggest a program topic, or to hear an archive program, please visit our website, thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Thank you for listening, and please listen again soon.